thing on the road to being disciples, followers of Jesus, a church that is known for love, known for the love of Jesus Christ. And the last question that was planned well in advance to be preached on on this day was on the topic of giving. And for those of you that received the email that I sent out uh, Thursday night, technically early Friday morning, if not, it's okay. You'll, you'll have plenty of opportunities to give. I informed you and, and gave some biblical precedents for the need that is present in our church family, specifically for Brenda, the widow, and the daughters uh, to help pay for the $13,000 bill that must be paid in full coming this Tuesday, the day before the funeral. I can't tell you how many times I've said this, but here I am saying it again. There is no irony with God. There is no coincidence with God. He planned for me to preach this message on this day when there is nothing but need financially for one of our own. So that being said, we're going to look in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, and I would encourage you when you're done here, take time and read these chapters. It's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. They are profound and they hold so much weight in regards to the topic of how we are to give. But let me ask you the question that we have formulated as a part of who we are as a church as it pertains to giving. Rather than just saying, yeah, we value giving because it's in God's word, let, let's allow it to search our hearts a little bit more as to how we feel about giving. And the question is this, do you view giving as an opportunity or as an obligation? In the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul is addressing a lot of things. But one of the things in particular that for, for, for unfortunate circumstances that have unfolded that he has to address is defending his apostleship's authority, his apostolic authority. He had to defend it because there were what we see from the Greek termed by Paul as these super apostles or, or quite literally the superlative apostles that rose up after Paul had left the church in Corinth and started spreading lies about what a real apostle looks like. And they were explaining the characteristics of what a real apostle looks like, and they were vain. They got to speak really well. They got to dress really right. They, they got to they gotta be in, in a good cahoots with political figures and have a lot of pull and authority. A lot of things that not necessarily are inherently bad, but manipulated to be bad. And Paul, in first and especially second Corinthians, his second letter, has to defend a lot of his apostolic authority. Something he doesn't take lightly because Paul isn't insecure. We know in Corinthians that Paul says, I don't care how those super apostles judge me or evaluate me. He says, I don't care how you even evaluate me. And then he goes even further and says, I don't even care how I evaluate myself. Because all of us are messed up and fickle and vain, even myself. I only care what God says about me. When God says I am righteous in his sight, he says I've made you into a new creation. That's all that matters. I am flawed. But Jesus fills the voids of my deficiencies. So Paul is saying that, but still saying, okay, these guys are tarnishing my credibility so that any word that I do speak as an apostle is not going to be taken seriously. So I've got to step up and I've got to defend 
what God has given me the authority to preach and to do. And he takes a very specific moment to defend his apostolic right to receive monetary donations. I'm not preaching about why it's right for a pastor to be blessed by the church through the tithes. That is not what I'm preaching on, but it's important for us as we lead up to 2 Corinthians 8. So, there were at some point these super apostles that attacked specifically the, 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 the fact that these, these apostles, the real apostles like Paul and Barnabas, um, they attacked this idea, this fact that Paul and other apostles were receiving financial blessings for their work. Read, write this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a, it, it speaks about it extensively. And he says, don't we have the right to, because they also were saying, they shouldn't get married. If you're a real apostle, you, you shouldn't get married. And he's like, don't we have a right to take a wife, a believing wife, if we want to? We're dudes. We're human beings. We fall in love. And so he defends that. And then he goes on to this topic of giving. And he says, w w would you say to a person in this profession, he refers to a soldier, a person who, who signed up to go to the Army, the Marines, the Navy, Air Force, whatever, and, and, and put their life on the line and dedicate their life for however many years it might be, don't they deserve to get payment for their work? Don't, don't, don't any of us who do a job deserve to be paid for it? And he's straight up saying, ministers are no different. So I don't know what they're talking about. And he quotes the Old Testament scripture, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. So, so he's arguing from that perspective. But then he goes on and he says, but, you know, we did not partake of this right. He says it's a right that we as apostles or ministers have. All because we don't want to give you a reason to be indignant towards us. Which, this is a total side note. But a lot of people that I even went to school with that are pastors, if you're watching online, this one's for you, pals. Um, they would love to almost like puff themselves up and say real pastors shouldn't. They shouldn't take any money for themselves. They shouldn't work. As you're going to see today, this is a very situational in, uh, situation that Paul is giving this idea for. It's all because the Corinthians had a tarnished viewpoint of giving and ministers. And so Paul says, I have every right to. Let's not be confused about this. I work. But I'm, I'm not going to receive money from you guys because I know it's going to get you gossiping and talking because of that, those seeds of doubt and lies that were planted. So he goes, I'm not going to even do that. That's how much I'm going to sacrifice for you because I love you and I don't want my work in Christ helping you become a Christian church, Paul to the Corinthians, to be in vain. I don't want you to go down that road so far. I'll become whatever I need to so that some might be saved. So that's 1 Corinthians 9, and he says that. So you would think Paul would say, okay, he's not going to touch giving at all. He's going to avoid the topic because it's sensitive with this group of people. Mm -mm. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you read the very end of the, uh, of the book in the last chapter, the very first few verses, Paul gives a command to give. It's not going to be on the screen, but let me just for the sake of it, before we get into our text for this morning, read it for you. It's the first four verses of chapter 16. It says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. This is referring to, we know from scholarship studies, that there were Christians in Jerusalem under persecution that were extremely impoverished. And Paul is referring to that. We're going to take up a collection. This isn't tithing. This is specifically referring to above and beyond what we call in our church a love offering that we're going to receive today. 
Now about this type of collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive with letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable, I'll go with them also. Now, I don't like the NIV translation because the Greek behind it, on the first day of every week, each one of you should, that implies a possibility. This is an imperative in the Greek. It's a command. I, I don't know why the NIV translated it that way. I'm not sure what you're, if you've got other translations of the Bible say. In the Greek, if it's imperative, it's not a contingency. It's not subjunctive, which means it's not subjective. It's not a maybe. It's do this. You do it. So Paul is clearly in chapter 16 giving a command to say there are brothers and sisters, a part of the faith in the church in Jerusalem that are in dire need of monetary help. Here's what you ought to do to prepare to receive, to, to, to help them. And he gives them that standard. Now, jump to 2 Corinthians. Time has passed since this original letter. And unfortunately, while the Corinthians did follow through on some of the commands and the advice and the direction that the Apostle Paul had given, in regards to giving, they, they started, but they kind of waned and fell off. And now in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is the follow-up to the command in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The follow-up to, hey, it's getting close for us to receive that offering and send our brothers to bring it to those in need in Jerusalem. How are we doing? Let's get an update. And Paul, he knows how they're doing. And now chapter 8, the verses that we're going to focus on are specifically focusing on the intent of giving. Back to our question. Do you view giving as an opportunity or an obligation. Um, and th there's a lot of like little side notes that I have to give because we're talking about giving. First and foremost, let me say, this is a great church. And I'm not just saying that. Like, like this is a great church, and you give faithfully. You really do. Um, so this is not a message, while it might seem like every message that's preached is a message of chastisement because we're doing something wrong. No. There are times for that. And let me be honest with you. I'll tell you, if I'm about to preach a message that's like, you all need to listen up. Um, this isn't one of those. However, it doesn't mean that it's still not fully applicable to every single one of us. There might be some heart issues that, I, that you're going to grapple with today in regards to giving money. But also, let me say this. In regards to the idea of giving, we don't just believe in giving money. We believe, just as Pastor Chase showed us last week in regards to service, Christ gave his life, his time, his gifts. We believe we need to be generous with all that God has bestowed upon us. We're to be stewards with everything at our disposal. The breath in my body I need to view as an opportunity to give to serve someone else. So while this is focusing on giving, and we're going to conclude with an opportunity to receive a love offering for a very specific need, understand this applies to every aspect of what we have to give. Um, so that being said, let's jump right into it. And I, I got to jump to verses 7 and 8 because in this renewed perspective, Paul's line of reasoning in regards to giving and how we view it and what kind of heart we have towards it, really kind of his thesis of his argument is in verses 7 and 8. And it shows us the condition of the Corinthians' heart towards giving. 
So let me just read to you verses 7 and 8, and they say this. But since you excel in everything, take note of that word excel. We're going to come back to it later in the message. Here's what you excel in, in faith, in speech, and in knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in love that we have kindled in you, referring to the apostles, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. This is big. We got a lot to talk about there. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. What are we a church that's known for? Here, Paul says, I want to test the sincerity of your love. Oh, this is big. By comparing it with the earnestness, the readiness, the like, we're going to do it with others. How many of you have, have heard before, like, don't compare yourself to others? You shouldn't do that, right? It's true, but it's not. <laughs> and let, let me tell you why. First of all, Paul says right here, I'm comparing you. That's what I'm doing. But he's not doing it spitefully, and he's not doing it indignantly. He's doing it honestly. He's doing it fairly. Um, first and foremost, let me make this point. The Corinthians were spiritually strong in everything but giving. We saw that in verse 7. If you go back to 1 Corinthians starting in chapter 12, all the way up to chapter 14, we have the, the famous spiritual gifts, the charismata. That, that's the idea of grace gifts. It's the combination of those two Greek words, grace and gift. Char charis, grace, and mata, gift. Paul says, you Corinthians are great in all these, and he, he actually mentions it in broad terms, in faith gifts, in speech gifts, you know, the gift of faith. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, not just faith that I believe in God, but this above and beyond supernatural life. Can't explain it. I just know what it's going to happen. That's that supernatural idea of faith that God bestows in times of need. Speech gifts, tongues, prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, interpretation, uh, and, and uh, or excuse me, knowledge was included in that. So all of these gifts that are mentioned, Paul is reiterating to them, you're great in them. But remember chapter 13, the love chapter, right, in between it all. But you lack the necessary ingredient to make these gifts effective. Love. If you have not love, you're a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. You're just noisy. You're not being effective at all. You're not harmonizing. You're not unifying. You're not healing. You're, you're, you're just you're kind of wasting space in a sense. And you're wasting the gifts God has given you. So now jumping back here, we kind of see that reiterated in a very specific way. He goes, okay, I've talked about the gifts, which you're great in. I've told you about that ingredient that you need to make it effective love. Well, testing the sincerity of the love that I commanded you to have that you claim to have now had, I don't see it. Here's why. Remember the command that I gave you, 1 Corinthians 16, to be prepared to give an offering for those in need? You're not doing it. You started it, but you haven't finished through. You haven't follow through and then paul says here's how i'm going to help you see it i'm going to compare your giving to the giving of others not about to do that not about to pull out giving statements in this church and say hey look at what audrey gives why don't you give as much out not about to do that um but this is a time where we see comparison as a good thing and let's talk about that um let, let me say it this way based on everything that we just saw the corinthians were good at exercising gifts to serve themselves, but not others. They were mishandling that which they were called to steward well. And Paul's saying, you're, you're really good getting together and celebrating and, and, and edifying the body, but you're not really edifying it because it's not glorifying Christ because you've 
you've totally set aside this aspect of it, the gift giving. He uses the same Greek wording to describe this supernatural gifting that God has bestowed upon us. It's a gift that we are to exercise and to exercise properly, and the Corinthians weren't doing it. So we're gonna, let's talk about comparison. Paul uses comparison in this teaching, and let me make this point before we get into the specific examples of comparison. Comparison isn't wrong as long as the focus of comparison is character. Okay? Really important that you get that. We need to focus on the character of individuals. Because, listen, character influences your conduct. Okay? The way that you live and the way that you act. We can determine, this is important, listen carefully, we can determine a person's character by their conduct. But we got to be careful with doing that. Because this gets so easy to point fingers. You got to be looking, let me say it this way, for the right fruit. Because this is what Jesus himself says. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 15 and 16, he says this, watch out for false prophets. It's kind of what Paul is dealing with, with the super apostles, also false prophets. Watch out for them. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They do look good. They do look like one of your own. But inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Here it is, verse 16. By their fruits, you will know them. So it's not enough to just focus on the way that people are acting, but it's imperative that we focus specifically on the fruit that's being borne out by the way that they act. And again, that, that, that's something that we have to be mature and wise and discerning and extremely gracious when doing, because it can lead down a dark path of condemnation, which none of us are meant to do. But we can't escape the fact that this is clear. Jesus himself says, you're going to know, look at their conduct, because their conduct reveals their character. Look at Proverbs 27, 17. Very specifically, we know this one, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Like, th think about that realistically. We sharpen each other. Why? Because we evaluate each other. We compare notes with each other. We, we might have conflict with each other. We might be abrasive to each other. But that's because we're being real with each other and not phony and fake. I, I, I couldn't help but think about when I was in college. Um, that's really when the Lord got a hold of my life, even though I grew up in this church. That's when I say that's when I was saved. It's my freshman year of college. Uh, my roommate, who closely became one of my closest friends, uh, wasn't originally one of my closest friends. In fact, I really didn't like him for no good reason. I, I'll tell you why in a second why I think I didn't like him. Um, but I, I just remember this one time he even asked me if he could use, I got a printer. Like, I didn't know how the library system worked. I was like, what? You gave me money to go and print at the library? So I got myself my own printer, and I felt all good about that. So I got my own little Canon inkjet. Yeah, I can print right in my room. And my roommate at the time, not friend, uh, said, hey, would you mind if I use that? I was like, no, I use it. You're going to pay for my ink and my paper? And, and, and I, I was really cruel about it. I really wish I wasn't that way. Um, Kevin, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. Um, I just had no good reason. I was just like, no, you're not using my printer. It was selfish. Um, and I, I, I can't help but think about how much later as that own year progressed, Kevin and I grew to be the closest of friends. 
and specifically why I valued our relationship above all else is because he was the first person in my life that truly set a standard of godliness for me. It's not that there weren't other godly people, but for some reason that one just stuck. And he wasn't afraid to say things to me that people have never said to me before. I used to, I used to talk, Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. I was still talking like a child. I was crass. I thought I was being funny, even though I was going to school to be a, a pastor and all that. And I'm joking around, and it's, 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 it's just vulgar. And finally, he just looked at me one day, and he's like, why do you talk like that? I was like, I never thought about it that way. I really never thought about it that way because everybody that I'd been surrounded with and my friends growing up, they talked that way. They were just that way. And I could have gotten indignant. Who do you to judge me? No, I was like, you know what? He's probably got a point, you know, especially if God's word says this and I'm acting this way. And we, we grew to be the closest of friends still to this day. And, and, and I think that's so important for us to see here. We think comparison, condemnation, evil, run. no. It's it's clearly in the Bible explicitly in Matthew chapter seven and then implicitly everywhere else. Jesus is saying, evaluate, 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 know their conduct, know their fruit. It reveals their character. Don't be don't be jaded and veiled to the fact that they might just have cheap clothing on, but they're ferocious wolves. Why you got to see the fruit. Don't focus on the outward appearance of these individuals. Look at how much godliness is exuding from them. Their character, their selflessness, their sacrifice, their love, their provision, their generosity, their honesty. That, that's what you look for. So comparison in this case is good. And Paul's about to show us how unashamed he is to use comparison. Um, let's get into it. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 8. The first example that he uses to compare the giving of the Corinthians to someone else says this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace, I'm going to come back to that later, that God has given the Macedonian churches. There's the example, a church in Macedonia. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, catch it, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. That's saying something. We're talking about Paul, man. Exceeded our expectations. Here's what they did. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So let's take a look at the first example that Paul uses to compare the Corinthians giving to. Um, we're going to take a look at the character of the Macedonians giving. The, the, the situation that they were in and then the resolve of their character that proved itself through the fruit that was borne out in their conduct. So first, Paul makes it clear. Let me just like spitfire some of these. Very severe trial. This is the situation that the Macedonian church was in. And we don't know exactly what that is, but again, commentators agree. Most likely, they were being persecuted. So catch this. The collection is for persecuted believers in Jerusalem, and they're being persecuted. And we all know the kind of thought process we could have. Well, they got to fend for themselves because I'm in the same boat as they are. Mm-mm. In the midst of the same type of situation, 
their days. Okay, and it says specifically they were extremely impoverished. Now, again, we don't know. Uh, studies show that we, we know geographically the ancient city of Corinth was a major hub of commerce and trade. Kind of like a, a port city, uh, like a New York or uh, on the west, like Seattle or, or a Philly or different places where a lot of commerce and trade takes place. That means it's an economical hub uh, of, of abundance. So the Corinthians had money. Now, the Macedonians, it was also a pretty affluent, well-established Roman colony hub spot. So while maybe the town was wealthy and affluent, the Christians were not. For whatever reason, probably persecution, maybe not necessarily to the point of being imprisoned, but maybe persecution was they were being unlawfully taxed. We don't know. But for whatever reason, because of persecution, these who should have been affluent people, the Macedonians, like the Corinthians, weren't. They were extremely impoverished. Paul says they gave. In spite of these hardships and these tragic events that were outside of their control, they gave. And he uses a very, very important word to describe the kind of giving that they exercise he says their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity now just for just for uh the heck of it when, when you think of the word generosity uh I, I asked this to my wife last night think about if you could give in your own words the definition of generosity and evie ju- just for just for everybody's clarification what is about what you said last night? When I asked you, in your own words, define generosity. Giving more than what's required, or giving above and beyond, right? We think like literally more bucks, more dollars, right? That's what we think. That's not what the word means. Generosity in no way means inherently that if you're generous, you got to give more, like above and beyond. That's not what it means. Generosity literally has the connotation of single-mindedness pure in motivation it's an attitude of the the heart that you have in your giving it's not about the amount it's about i see a need and i I just i gotta go after it and i want to give with no strings attached pure in motive this is what paul says was the fruit of the conduct of their character. That's how you know they were legit. They were generous in their giving. But that being said, it's kind of funny. He does go on to say they gave beyond their means. That literally means they gave above and beyond. But we'll see later. Paul's not commanding them. It's just a good note to take up. Wow, they were sold out to those in need. Goes on and he says it wasn't prompted. It wasn't something that we told them they had to do. They came to us and said, we want to give. They viewed it as a privilege. Literally, the word translated privilege means favor. How many of you have said that before? Pastor, do me a favor. Let me give. Let me give. If you do that, man, you are holy. I don't think I've ever done that before. That's what it says they were doing. They were like, don't rob us of this favor. Do us a favor. Let us give. And Paul's literally like kind of saying here like, you don't know. You, you've already given. 
and, and, and your circumstances, they're understandable. You don't, you don't need to give. No, no, Paul, we want to give. Don't take this. This is a, do us this favor. Don't take this blessing from us. We want to be a blessing. And he goes, and they did, and they went above and beyond. And they recognized specifically what the cause was for, the service to the saints. This is referring against what we've already mentioned, the persecuted saints in Jerusalem. So here's really what I want us to understand about the idea of the attitude of the Macedonian example, their character in giving. Giving should never be contingent upon your circumstances. This is honest truth that Paul is saying through his wording above and beyond. You can't make an excuse. You can't make an excuse. Well, I'm in this. The Macedonians had every reason to make an excuse. We're in the same boat that they're in. We've got it just as hard as they do. And yet they didn't. And Paul is saying, that's what we need to look at. That's righteous giving. That's generosity. They were pure in their motivation. They didn't allow their circumstances to dictate their obedience. And, and, and the easiest way, listen, listen, the easiest way for you to talk yourself out of giving in any capacity is to use your circumstances to justify your, your obedience, your commitment. You, you'll never run out of reasons to convince yourself why you shouldn't give. You'll always have a reason. Always. Always. This is why Paul points out the need to be generous. That's the idea of generosity, single-mindedness. Yep, my circumstances are horrible. Yep, I don't know what's going to happen if I, if I do it. I'm single-minded right now. I, I'm focused on just doing the work of the Lord. And God, I trust you. I trust you. All right. Track with me, though. Track with me. I'm not talking about going broke, all right? That's not, that's not what I'm saying. And, and just an example of not necessarily generous giving, but it was an example that I couldn't help but think of. When my wife and I were buying our first house, which we no longer have, we sold, um, down in South Jersey, it was funny how we were going through the process of house hunting and, and searching, and it was so hard just to finally like be like, this is a house. This is a house. And when we found the house, and we were like, all right, this house we're going to go for, it was amazing how we couldn't stop coming up with reasons as to why we shouldn't buy this house. Now, again, I'm not, this isn't a generous example. This was self-serving for us. This is about us buying a house. But I, I'm, I'm just using it to say it's so obvious how readily we will always come up with reasons not to give. And many of them are practical. We weren't asking stupid questions about our house. We were asking very wise economical realities based on our jobs, based on our income, based on the needs that the house was going to present after we were the homeowners and we had to worry about replacing roof, boilers, floors, renovations, everything, taxes, local ordinances. We, we thought about all those things. There's always going to be a million reasons for you to talk yourself out of, I, I just can't, I can't right now, I can't. God, you get it, I can't. We see God's word. Keep going. Verses 6 through 8. So we urge Titus. Just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace. There it is again on your part. I'm going to reread the verses I read before. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Verse 8, I'm not commanding you. 
but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So, so really quickly, verse 6, what does Titus, what, what does he have to do with this? It's kind of confusing. <laughs> he was sent to push him in the right direction. He was a good delegate. He was a good ambassador to be like, hey, guys, you got Paul's first letter. You got his second letter. I'm just here to help make sure that things keep moving. You know, have you been receiving the regular collection? <laughs> it's like uh, that's what Titus was in that moment. Um, then jump to verse 7. Remember, we, we already talked about the pre-existing circumstances of the Corinthians with the super apostles maligning Paul, Paul's need to defend his apostolic authority, and particularly for the sake of our discussion in regards to giving. And we saw the command to give in 16, and now he's resuming his, his speech, his commands, his help to lead them in the right direction. Now, he says in verse 7, but since you excel in everything, or overflow, or abound, kind of like a cup that just overflows, like you guys are good in this area. You, you are well endowed by God to exercise these gifts. Um, he uses this verse, this word twice in this verse, the first time, but as you excel in these gifts that you overflow in, it's an indicative, which, which simply means this in the Greek. You have this because of what someone else did for you. He's referring to Jesus. You overflow in this area all because of what Christ did for you, as we're about to talk about with the second example in a few moments. He goes, so remember that. Let me remind you. you. You are just strong in this, not because of yourself, because of the sacrifice, the generosity of someone else for you. Now, he uses the same word at the end of the verse. See that you also excel. In this grace or gift of giving. Same verb, different tense and mood, which literally and just honestly means it implies what should happen. This verb is saying, here's what ought to follow. Because you excel in these gifts that were given to you, not because of your own work, now it should be reciprocated. You received this, now do likewise. It was given to you out of sacrifice. It was given to you with pure motive. You didn't have to earn it. It's freely given. So freely give back. That's what Paul is saying. It is the last piece to the reality of being a strong church. The Corinthians were, again, excelling in every way but this. So let me give you this point. A relationship with Christ brings benefits as well as responsibilities. And, and I hate to say it, but I, again, I'm talking to us, the church, but we live in a day and age where we like to focus on what benefits us. What do I get out of this? And there are times that that isn't the wrong question to ask, where that's prudent, where that's wise. But right here, we see this idea of generosity, that should never be on your mind. You should never be giving with the idea of, well, I expect this back. I expect anything that is self-fulfilling to me. That's not the way the gospel works. We see it, as Paul just said here. He goes, the way that you're filled and the way that you abound is because you were freely given. So freely give. And this reciprocating effect of abounding and overflowing and joy is just going to keep happening. But the minute your mind becomes double in its thinking, you've gone wayward. 
and trouble and hurt and bitterness and anger come. Okay, so let's go on to uh, the next the next phrase that I really want us to point out. Paul then says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you. There's the big one. This is the fun one that I get to talk about. I, I'm not commanding you in verse 5. Um, specifically, let me say this. In verse 5, Paul says that the Macedonians gave themselves to God and then to us. So back to verse 5. Let me read that to you. They, referring to the Macedonians, exceeded our expectation in giving, in generosity. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then to us, and then by the will of God to us. What does that mean in verse 5? They gave themselves to the, uh, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also. Like, what does that have to do with anything? He's talking about an example, the circumstances that they were in. They exceeded our expectation. They gave themselves to God then to us. You can make it about money, and it's still related to it, but really what Paul is saying here is, Go back to the topic of apostolic authority being challenged. He's saying, first and foremost, look at the Macedonians' example of submission to the command. They gave, them God, they gave themselves to God first and foremost, as it should be. They, they submitted to the Lord, and they call him in as their Lord and Savior, and they obey his word. Now, they have submitted to our apostolic authority so that when we give them direction, they listen because they trust it's God's will. These men in, in, in position in this time, they are only where they are because God willed it. Yes. And they trust God by saying, I trust you. I may not understand it fully. I may not like it all the way, but I trust you because it's by God's will that you are where you are. He's saying, Corinthians, let's be really real right now. I know the words that have been spoken about me in your midst, that I'm not a real apostle and your, your trust in me is really wavering. The Macedonians, they trust me, and they're blessed for it. Now, Paul says, I'm not commanding you. In chapter 16 of the previous book, what did we say Paul did about this very collection? He commanded them. You should receive a collection every week and pool it up for this need for the persecuted believers in Jerusalem. You, you should have. It's an imperative. You do it. You look at the book of Deuteronomy. You look in the book of Exodus. It says God commanded. It's so clear. The word is just straight up clear. But then he goes on and he says, and I want to see the intentions of their heart. Yes. Paul here isn't giving what we would like to see uh, as, as a scapegoat, a, a means to justify. You don't have to give. You, you don't have to. It's just something it's good to do as a Christian. He's not saying that here. Remember, he's dealing with individuals that don't take him seriously, that his credibility has been tarnished. So he knows if I go down this route and say I have the apostolic authority to command you to give to God, it's not going to mean anything. Two, two reasons why. Number one, you're tuning me out. You don't trust my credibility. Number two, the intention of your heart needs to be right in giving. I shouldn't command you. That's also what Paul's saying. I shouldn't command you. I have the authority by God to do it because it's what's right. He's commanded it in the Old Testament. I'm not going to do it. It will tarnish generosity. Generosity is to be single-minded. Hmm. Let me read for you. The next chapter, just one verse that's still a part of this whole discussion. Chapter 9, verse 7, and it says this. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. 
well, God says in Exodus, I command it, but I, I, I hope that it's something that's an agreement in the heart. People, you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly. Do I have to? Or under compulsion, legalistic, I do this because it's just what I do. Whether I like it or not, I do it. That, that, that shouldn't be either of the attitudes in giving. So, so let me give you just, I, I know I told you what it means literally, generosity, single-mindedness, pure in motive. Let me give you this example that I, that I really believe is a good definition for generosity. Because Paul equates it to love. Let me say this way. Generosity is voluntary sacrifice. Based on everything we see in Jesus and how he's told us to serve the world unapologetically, to give of ourselves above and beyond. Generosity is the idea that no matter what I'm giving, my mindset is that it is first and foremost voluntary. I shouldn't have to be told to do this. I, I should choose to do this. Not, not, I'm not talking about just in the church. I'm talking about when you go into the community, when you go home to show Jesus forth to the world, your family, your coworkers, your friends. You shouldn't be waiting for a command from the pulpit to tell you what you know God has already done for you and told you to go and do likewise. It's voluntary. But then secondly, it's sacrificial. The reality is if it costs us nothing, it's not really giving. It's convenience. And again, if we always look at our circumstances or the reasons why I should only give when it's convenient, you're not being generous. And remember, generosity is, it's, it's clear here, it's like it's what we ought to have the attitude of in our giving. It's not a take it or leave it. Okay, so again, it's voluntary sacrifice. Let me say this, we shouldn't view giving as something we have to do, but something we want to do. This is what Paul is trying to communicate. He's like, I could command you, but it tarnishes it. It, it, it dirties it. It muddies it. This is something that should be a response of praise to God. Okay, last phrase before, before I bring it to the last, the last example of Jesus. He says, test the sincerity of your love. He says, the reason you, I'm, I'm not commanding you, but, but I want you to do this voluntarily. Be generous like the Macedonians were to test the sincerity of your love. Um, this is, this is kind of rude of me, but I think the Greek word for test that I'm going to talk about here is just so dumb sounding. Dokimazo. Like, that's a funny word. I'm sorry if that sounds likened to another word in another language. Forgive me. Uh, that's just so funny. But, but the implication of this word is really profound. The idea of dokimazo is the testing of the genuine, genuineness of something as by fire. So we know that the way that gold is purified is it is melted down and it is refined in fire so that the dross and the imperfections and, and the poor elements that shouldn't be in the gold run down, but the gold remains and it is pure. And Paul is here saying, I'm not commanding you because if I command you, it's not true. I need to know that you're really someone who has submitted to the Lord. And we can see that by the fruit of your conduct. We can know your character as it pertains to giving. Um, ultimately this, what I think Paul is saying here for us to walk away with from the first example is generosity is an indication of transformation. If we're not willing to be generous, then I, I don't know how much we've really allowed Christ into our hearts. Here's why I say that. Second example that Paul gives 
as a comparison. Verse 9, for you know the grace, there it is again, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I, I, I have emphasized the, the word grace again and again and again, and here we see it really culminating. The grace of Christ is what was given freely to all the Corinthians in specific here. And it was generous. Look, Christ became impoverished. How? It says he was rich. It means in his eternal glory as the son of God, he looked at us in our brokenness, in our time of need, and said, I'm going to become that which they need. And it says that he set aside his divinity. It's like, this is a part of who I am, but I set it aside to come and to take upon myself the rigors and the pains of humanity. I am a rich son of the most high God in my throne next to the Father himself in heaven. I set it aside. I am rich. I become poor. How else was Jesus poor? We see it through his childhood. Where was he born? In a barn in Bethlehem, which if you study it, man, you're in the hood. All right. That's the easiest way I can say it. You're in the hood. That was not a good place to be. And they were outsiders. They weren't from Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. He was the son of a carpenter, not a man of well-renowned and made a lot of money. What did he become before he embarked on his three-year ministry? A carpenter, a man of hard work who didn't make much. He was poor. And then what does he do throughout his ministry? We know Jesus, when people wanted to come and follow him and say, Lord, I want to be like you. He goes, you know that just like the foxes and the birds, like the son of man has nowhere to lay his head at night. You, you sure you want to take up your cross and follow me? Know the cost. Count it up before you commit to this. He didn't live a lavish life. And then we see it through his death on the cross where he took sin upon himself. Where his heavenly father, who was the one who sustained him through all the hardships, he said, I got to take upon myself sin of humanity itself. And my father's not going to be able to, to look at me in that moment. And I will truly be alone. And I do this because I'm the only one who can to save humanity. Jesus epitomized poverty itself for us. And Paul is saying, this is the ultimate example. So if you struggle with being gracious, you've forgotten that you were first shown grace by Jesus. How much of Christ have you submitted to? How much are you reminded of who he is for you? He goes back all the way to verse 1. We want you to know the grace of God that was shown the Macedonians. In other words, the graciousness that I'm about to describe about the Macedonians and how generous they were only became of the grace of, came by the grace of Jesus Christ. And they knew it. And it was by that grace that they were able to give. Now, follow through on the grace. Just as you have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, and you excel in these amazing gifts that are serving the community in the house well, you've forgotten. You've forgotten about that, 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 that last gift. Reciprocating what was done for you. Grace. Struggle with being generous. 
you need to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? You may know about him. Because you sing songs and read your Bible doesn't mean you really know him. We've got to finish. I'm preaching long today. 10 through 12. And here's my judgment. Evaluation. This isn't condemnation. Remember, it's an important word. This isn't a negative word. Here's my judgment about what's best for you in this matter, Corinthians. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. 1 Corinthians 16. Gave the command, heard reports. You guys were on board. Now finish the work. Finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. You know, you know what that means, right? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. According, this is important, this is really important, according to your needs. According to your needs. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. You might have been sitting here this whole time and some of you might have been welling up with Maybe offense. I hope not, but maybe some of you were. Now, I'm about to deflate the offense, hopefully. Because Paul knew it was coming too. He knew the Corinthians had a lot of baggage about this topic of giving. And he did use the comparison model and say, let's look. But remember, he wanted to compare the attitude of their hearts, the conduct of their character, not the amount of their giving. And he says right here, here here's my point. Generosity isn't determined by the quantity of your gift, but the quality. This is not a, a, a sermon or a text from the Bible to say, you need to give this amount, otherwise you're not being generous. That's not generosity. Generosity has nothing to do with the amount. That's between you and God. If you know in your heart that this amount that I want to give to health is what you need to give, give it. If, God, you feel in your heart, you know, this is what's convenient for me. I could give more. Do it. If you're looking at it and you're like, man, I, I'm just giving this amount. I don't got it. I'm just doing it because, man, I know what so-and-so gave. Don't, don't do that. That's not right either. Give in your heart what you have decided in your heart to give before the Lord. Generosity isn't about the amount. Paul's making that clear. It's not about the amount. It's about the attitude of your giving. Once again. Do you give? Is your giving done, looked at as an opportunity or an obligation? Finally, 13 through 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Again, the goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Last point for you. We're bringing it to a close. God's not asking you to become a slave to poverty. He's asking you to be generous when others are in slavery to poverty, to tragedy, to hardship. He says right here the goal is equality. Now let me just be clear. This this term is used a lot today in, in a socialist idea. He's not referring to we all got to have the same numbers in our bank account. The Old Testament scripture that he quotes is the book of Exodus about the manna that came from heaven, the birds and the bread, when the Israelites had no food in the wilderness. And God says, I'll provide Jehovah Jireh. 
and he provides, that he sees their need, and he provides for us. And the command is specific. He goes, use this specific measurement that was common in the day, and based on the number of people in your house, collect just as much as you need. And it says that the Israelites, those who gathered much, didn't have too much, and those who gathered little didn't have too little. It was exactly what they needed. So right here, this isn't to be taken as, again, oh, we all need to have the same amount of funds in our accounts because that's only fair. No, it's based on your situation. If you're a family of five, you're a family of ten, you're a family of two, where you live, the, the, the situation of the state. It's not saying you all got to have the same amount because that's what's fair. He's saying don't live tight-fistedly. And then as someone who doesn't have much, don't live pointing a finger and saying you ought to give to me. It's equal, and what he means by equality here is equality of of of, of uh, provision, yeah. equality of generosity. He's saying we all ought to be generous, no matter what season situation you're in. The goal is that when someone's in need, we step up, and then when we're in need, it's reciprocated to us. That is the Christ way. That's generosity. So here's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna ask Pastor Chase to come forward at this time. And uh, I'm just going to have him take a, a moment to pray. And we're going to really put this into practice. Uh, again, for those of you that received the email today, if you came prepared to give for, for uh, the love offering, let me be specific with you. Uh, the email indicated some of the details. Uh, the, the total bill is $13,000. I've talked with Brenda, um, that, and that's not the only cost. There was another bill that was $2,000 that she had to pay this last week. Some co-workers and others have given to her. Uh, some people that should have, haven't. And I'm not referring to people in here. Uh, it's just the name of the game. The Bible is so clear about caring for those in need. Book of James says to care. True religion is when we care for orphans and widows. Book of Deuteronomy, give. Don't give tight-fistedly, but give. So much that we see in Scripture about this. But what I want to do is I just, I really want you to take a moment, if you came prepared for to give, and you have your gift for this love offering, to help meet the need of this $13,000 goal, I just want you to dedicate it to the Lord. And I want you to just say, Lord, make sure that I'm doing this generously. Not the amount. Make sure that my, pure, my, my motive is pure, that I'm single-minded in this gift, this voluntary sacrifice giving it no strings attached lord help brenda help briasia help briasia help the family in this tragic time and if you're here today and you haven't decided what to give take a moment give it to the lord thirteen thousand dollars is a lot of money i'm going to tell you right now they don't have it it's got to be paid in full by tuesday i want to believe god for a miracle this is so practical. Why can't we believe God for a miracle? He's a miracle worker. He's a way maker. So let him use you. And remember, this event, we, we might try to come up with reasons why, why we ought not to give. And we can always come up with a lot of reasons why. Let me just say this. This was a tragedy. This was not foreseen. This was not planned. There were not steps in place to account for this. So don't let your mind go there. 
Jesus, right now as you just search our hearts. I pray that we would not do this act of giving reluctantly or under compulsion. Would we be cheerful givers as you intend us to be? And God, I pray right now for the Love family. I pray specifically for Brenda and Briasia and DeAsia. God, would you help them in this time of sorrow and mourning? Jesus, would you lift them up from the pit of despair? Jesus, there is pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus, I pray that we as their church family, their brothers and sisters in Christ, would stand up and be the family that they need in this time of difficulty. God, would you ensure that our hearts are in right standing with the right attitude. Let our acts of service be pure in this moment. Jesus, let our giving be generous. I pray that we would help in their time of need. And Jesus, again, for those of us that are here, that are just struggling, that are struggling with, if there's some here that are feeling pressured, let the pressure be gone right now in Jesus' name. There's no condemnation. There's no expulsion. There's no, you can't come to this church anymore. It's nobody's business. But between you and the Lord right now, no eyes are looking at you. Just know what God's word says. Remember what he did for you and respond accordingly. And Jesus, if we want to give, but we're just fearful because we're not sure we can give or the amount that we want to give, let that be dispelled right now in Jesus' name. It's not about the it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality of your heart. Let our attitudes be right. Jesus, for those of us who think we, we don't have to give, I just echo Paul's words. Look at Jesus. Look at what he did. He didn't have to, but he did. In Jesus' name. Ushers, if you could uh, come up and receive the offering. And as the ushers are preparing to do that, I just invite you to stand on your feet with me. Close in prayer. Just again, a reminder to you, for those that can stay and help, we'll, we'll clean up, we'll clear out. There will be pizza. For those of you that want to come to the funeral, Wednesday 9 to 12 is the viewing. For those that just want to pop in and pay your respects and go back to work, whatever you can do, and then 12 to 2. Jesus, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that it shares, the help that it gives. Jesus, I pray now that we as the body of Christ in our obedience would be able to show Christ to the family, to the love family. Jesus, to the extended family, to those who are outside looking in and they would see, wow, that church is known for love. Wow, they love each other unconditionally. They give with such abundance. They are generous. They are so pure. Jesus, I pray that this would be a testimony of how good you are and how good you've been to us. Jesus, I thank you now for this day that you have made. Lord, I pray that as we leave here, we would be encouraged to live for you fully. And in Jesus' name, the people of God agreed and said,
Amen, amen, amen. Hey, God bless you. Thank you for today. Be safe. And thank you for those that are helping.